You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, let's uh, move on to our next topic, Mike, and um, let's talk about subcontinent cricket. And you've spoken a bit about that earlier in our chat today um, and you're passionate about the subcontinent, about its cricket, culture and love affair with it. And um, you just came back from India and Sri Lanka, five weeks you spent over there for a bit of a holiday. And um, you've lived in India and, and Sri Lanka for, for years as well, for many years in either country. Um, you've toured there uh, to India, Sri Lanka and Pakistan as a broadcaster during your career in and um, this passion obviously led you to write Cricket Beyond the Bazaar, which was one of your earliest books. And as you said before, was mainly to open the eyes of the Australian cricket community to uh, the value of India and the subcontinent as a whole. And also detailing Australia's history of touring there over the years, like the Thai Test in 86 um, and also the World Cup win in 1987, um, which didn't get much attention in Australia. Um, apparently, they showed um, a movie in the second innings. Am I right? Uh, Mike? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Natasha Kinski in um, what was it called? I can't even remember what it's called now. Um, yes, oh, that was an outrage, absolute outrage. Yeah. Um, but they, they're very passionate about their cricket in the subcontinent, Mike. They, they worship their players like gods, sort of, in a way. Um, very different to how we see cricketers in Australia. You know, if you see Pat Cummins on the street, you go up to Pat and say, can I have a photo with you? Whereas in India, there's a lot of people that crowd, you know, their players like Tendulkar or Kohli because uh, they just love their cricket so much. And, and I went to an ODI in Adelaide Oval in 2018 when India came out uh, that summer. And I felt like I was at the One Katie Stadium or something. Like <laughs> the, the noise was unreal, um, the passion. Um, experiencing that firsthand. Um, so, Mike, why, why do you love the subcontinent so much? And you've already talked about it before, but why were you compelled to write uh, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar? Uh, it's interesting that the I've never felt out of place on the subcontinent. Um, and I think that's the, my first tour was to Pakistan in 1982. Um, with Kim Hughes's team, and it was a disastrous tour. He should, shouldn't have been captain anyway. He should have been Rod Marsh, but they, the cricket board didn't have the uh, courage to appoint him then so soon after the World Series cricket revolution. He was, Marsh was still seen as, um, as a rebel. Um, and that, um, so 82, there was more, I think the, our first game, I think, was in Multan, and I was staggered. There was more animal traffic than vehicle traffic uh, on the roads of Milton, even in 1982. I mean, it was it was really a march back in time. Uh, it was extraordinary. But I've never ever felt out of place in that part of the world, and uh, got good friends there and enjoy returning there uh, when I can. Um, I don't know. Initially, I was an adopted child, uh, Jack, and I perhaps I thought that uh, there might have been some um, link to uh, that. I always sort of felt some sort of affinity for that part of the world, 
whether I could have been linked to it or what. Um, it turns out that I, I wasn't. Um, if I had any, I, I don't know who my father was, but my, my mother, I did track down um, quite recently over the last 10 years and she was, uh, she'd been adopted as well. So it was a pretty messy background. And um, but there was a New Zealand link there, um, certainly not an Indian link. Um, perhaps I just was romanticizing, perhaps that I was linked to Ramji or, or to the Nawab of Patordi or someone. Um, but I don't know, I've just always felt comfortable there, and I'm sure it's got something to do with the, uh, the spirituality of the place, particularly in Sri Lanka as a Buddhist country. Um, there's, a, there's a quietness and a and um, uh, about it. Um, and you don't often use the word quietness too much about the subcontinent because of just the the weight of numbers is just so formidable. Um, but I, I just put it down to the fact that I've never filled out a place there and I've always been welcomed there. And um, and certainly from a journalistic point of view, it's uh, it's uh, it's given me so much joy, so much rich material to write about um, in uh, in that part of the world. And so many dramatic stories, you know, the bags of Jamshed Pur when we had to, you know, the Australian team had to get from Trivandrum in the deep south to Jamshed Pur up north via Calcutta. And we had to sign the same, a couple of the Indian journos were, uh, were asked to write um, a note for the um, border guards not to not to uh, to embargo the bags as they were crossing the border because a one-day game was to be played and you couldn't fly because of the storm. I mean, there is so much drama there in mm-hmm. um, when when you're touring, and it always has been and probably always will be. That from a, a it's such a a rich um, a rich palette for any journal or broadcaster. Um, I can remember one of the biggest impacts I had broadcasting for the ABC and um, uh, along with Peter Roebuck and Jimmy Maxwell and, and uh, co in, um, in Calcutta when I made reference to the number of kids who were doing the year 12 exams while it was on. I mean, it was something like 1.3 million or something in that particular part of the world were doing year 12 uh, um, exam that day and things like that. Um, would fascinate listeners anywhere in Australia, uh, mm. just to give them an insight into a very different, uh, a different world and a different way of life. And and that's basically it. That I've never felt uncomfortable there. And um, to the contrary, I've always felt welcome there. Yeah, absolutely, and very hospitable people as well in in the same. Yeah, very, especially in India, Sri Lanka, and, and Pakistan, very kind, very uh, hospitable. Um, we mentioned the reluctance as well, Mike, of teams touring the subcontinent. Some of the reasons were, you know, about getting ill, uh, especially that was the case for Australia on their early tours to Pakistan. Yeah. In India in 56, 59, any players in 1959 were hit hard by dysentery and hepatitis A or B. So Richie Benno thought, you know, it would be a good idea to get a team doctor, and he got Ian McDonald, who was Colin McDonald's um, brother, mm. who was a doctor and expert in tropical ailments, and he was a standby player as well because uh, he played Sheffield Shield cricket for 
Victoria as a wicketkeeper. So Richie Benno thought, well, we have a doctor and we have a standby player just in case. But many got um, severely hit with illness. Also food, trying different foods, etc. I think you will remember Mike and many other listeners, the late Shane Warne, um, to a tour in India in 98, got a crate of baked beans sent to him because he didn't like uh, uh, the food in India. Um, and also accommodation as well. The team in 1969 didn't stay at the best hotels and the recall of cats climbing over the food and all that stuff from their stories. Um, but this reluctance, Mark, has dissipated over time and players are embracing touring the subcontinent now. And the IPL has helped that immensely in terms of India. But you also see players em embracing religious festivals like in India, uh, you know, Holly and, you know, covering themselves in coloured powder and embracing themselves in the culture and uh, the religious festivals over there. And also um, Steve Waugh recently did his uh, project in India, The Spirit of Cricket, uh, taking photographs and of people playing cricket in India and opening everyone's eyes to to India and what a wonderful country it is. And so, Mike, why were teams reluctant to tour the subcontinent from the very early days when India and, and then Pakistan came into the fold in test cricket? I think it was just, as we've said, um, Jack, it was just a matter of <clears throat> a lot of stories, true and apocryphal, were handed down over the years. Um, let's remember that the first, the unofficial team in 35-36, uh, that uh, Jack Ryder was captain and Frank Tarrant was manager. They did it in absolute luxury. Um, we, the difficult thing was to work out what the collective noun is for Rolls-Royce because they were picked up in uh, a fleet of uh, uh, Rolls-Royces um, at different times in Patiala and one thing. They just moved from palace to palace to palace in 35-6, although two or three of them became ill. There's no doubt about that. Um, but uh, I think basically because of that, I think geographical isolation, as far as this Australia is concerned, it breeds in ignorance. And at that period, um, it was so remote. Uh, India was so remote, in, certainly in the 30s, um, you know, and Tarrant and uh, Ryder had to confront that then. And I think in the 50s, it was still remote as far as mainstream Australia was concerned. And, and certainly as far as mainstream Australian cricket was concerned, it was remote. And so the, the stories, true or apocryphal, handed down over the years. And it wasn't really until the, the, the influence of uh, border, Taylor and war when things began to change. And now, of course, it's, uh, they rejoice in playing there. And... I mean, it's challenging conditions, as we saw, you know, young uh, Todd Murphy making his debut, mm. um, how challenging, but, but how, as a mature 22-year-old, he was not phased by it and um, had some success there, which has led to his continued involvement with the team um, and how critical that became when Lyon uh, was injured. So, yes. you know, it's um, I think it's nothing more than that. And I think as they've become... Um, more familiar with that part of the world. They've spent more time there. Um, they've read more about it. They've got more friends. And as you say, quite rightly, the contact in the dressing room through uh, the IPL, that a lot of uh, the mysteries have been uh, dismissed. Absolutely. Um, before we move on to our next topic, Mark, let's talk about just Indian cricket and the future of cricket in the subcontinent. Um, 
as we mentioned in our chat today, and everyone knows that India has become the powerhouse of cricket. It's a complete contrast when they first started in Test cricket in 1932. Uh, they produced some of the uh, game's finest players, like Vinu Madcad. Sadly, his name gets tarnished with that controversial dismissal, but he was a fine cricketer himself. And then you have Bishan Betty, who was a very good spinner for, for India. And then Sunil Gavaskar, Sachin Tendulkar, you had Raul Dravid, and Il Kumbli, and obviously Kapil Dev, just to name a few. And you mentioned before, Mike, the 83 World Cup victory for India changed it, really. It changed how people Everything. looked at Indian cricket and took them more seriously as a, as a force to be reckoned with. And we've seen over the years they've won in Australia a couple of times now. That series in 2020-21 where they won at the Gabba was amazing from, you know, their, their team basically suffering injuries and then getting bowled out for a low score in Adelaide to come back and win that series was was pretty good. So, And to make it to two World Test Championship finals um, is, a, is a proud achievement in itself. So what changes have you noticed over Indian cricket over the years, Mike? And... And how do you see the future of Indian cricket, but also future of cricket in the subcontinent as a whole? Oh, I don't think it'll ever change. I mean, their passion for it is, uh, you know, second to none. Um, it's a, it's one of the languages. I mean, there's sort of 15 major languages spoken in India every day, and hundreds of other uh, dialects and one thing or other. But the it's, it is a language that brings the Indians together, uh, the language of cricket. Um, the same in Pakistan. I think, if anything, the Pakistanis might be marginally more uh, passionate uh, than the Indians. And it's going to be interesting in the World Cup when India play Pakistan again because it's a, it's a rare event because of history and politics, but um, it'll, it'll certainly be one to be watching. Um, it's, it's, it's always... Uh, it's an event with ramifications far beyond the uh, the boundary. Um, so, no, I th I think the game is assured. Um, I mean, the I can't think of his name off the top, but the new opening batsman for India that went to the West Indies recently, uh, the boy who was a twelve. Uh, Joss Wall. Joss Wall. Yeah. Yeah. What he was selling um, a, a little bits of puris from a. Uh, from a uh, from a cart on the side of the road as a kid, and now he's a millionaire through the, um, you know, he's come from nothing to something. Uh, be, because, and so that is some, one of the positives of the short form of the game. It does provide kids with an opportunity that would never have been there before. That I accept and understand. Um, I don't... <clears throat> one thing, Jack, that I don't mind... I, I, I don't mind if the, the short form is, is prosperous. What I don't like about it is that it tends to monopolise the conversation of the game. If we're talking only T20, we're talking only uh, money, um, we're, and we're talking um, <clears throat> the pecking order. I mean, cricket, I mean, tennis and golf historically have always had, you know, such and such Federer, uh, comma, Switzerland, comma, worth $7.7 .7 trillion or whatever it might be. The same in golf. The cricket has never had that until IPL. And that has changed <clears throat> the mood, the conversation of the game to a large degree. We'll now talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, somebody like Cameron Green 
from Perth who was on 3.7 million for such and such a franchise. And of course, all the Indian franchises are now beginning to own all of a franchise. They own them all, I think, in South Africa. And it'll be only a matter of time before they own franchises in Australia. So, okay, they've got the power. Um, but I, you know, that, that's what worries me from a traditionalist point of view and somebody who cares about it's hit the game's history and, and the, the value the, and the virtues of uh, the traditional game is that uh, one day T20 just monopolizes the conversation of the game. And I think that can be very, very dangerous. If we can't think beyond the checkbook and the rankings and what they're earning, and we pay no attention to what the game in essence stands for and what it has meant over so many years, well, we're in, we're in trouble. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what the future holds for Indian cricket going forward. But I think we can already see that a little bit now uh, with the IPL and uh, the way yeah. that T20 cricket well, is. Well, as I said about the, the redevelopment of the ground at Chittabaram Stadium, which you'll see when Australia play India in the World Cup. I mean, it is a magnificent mm. ground and that's all come from, and that money will continue to flow. Um, I would like to see um, the Indian Cricket Board perhaps put a little bit into the wider community into education, into health and other issues now that there's so much money flowing. Yes, absolutely. Um, for our next topic, Mike, let's talk about the importance of preserving cricket history um, of the game of cricket. And you care deeply about the history, Mike, so do I. And many people who um, watch the game care about its history as well. Um, and other people around the world do as well. So um, throughout our chat today, Mike, we've made references to the game's history uh, as reference points because without that history, we wouldn't be able to uh, speak about certain things within cricket. And you tend to do that in cricket where you tend to reference historical moments and uh, periods of time. Uh, but it's important that new cricket fans, Mike, entering the sport, they can learn so much from just reading a book, researching uh, the game's history and teaching the younger generation about the history and hopefully it will make them appreciate the game more because when you learn about the history, you see how the game's evolved and came to be, you learn to appreciate it more. And uh, Test cricket is a prime example of that, Mike. It's a living, breathing example of the game's history. As we discussed, it faces an uncertain future, but we have to do everything we can to try and preserve that. And, and many people within you know, cricket media, podcasting and social media sphere are covering the history of the game, uh, like Gideon Haig, yourself, David uh, Friff, uh, just to name a few. Uh, there's Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon from the Final Word podcast. Two journalists, cricket journalists from Australia do, do a thing on their podcast called Storytime, uh, looking back at the game's history. And also Jared Kimber, a well-known cricket uh, journalist from Australia also covers the, the history of the game as well. And you can probably include me on that list as well, Mike, because we've done historical series episodes on the podcast trying to educate people on the game's history. Um, and just to name a few episodes we've done, we've done Australia's early tours to the subcontinent in 1956-59, and we've done some on the Adelaide Oval 
and on Lord's Cricket Ground, where I spoke to Neil Robinson, Head of Heritage and Collections at Lord's and MCC on that. So those are just some of the episodes we've done on the history of the game um, on the podcast. But, but Cricket Mike, I think you would agree that it does a good job at preserving its history, and we have many good cricket museums in the world doing that, Adelaide Oval, Lord's, MCG with the sports museum there, uh, the SCG um, as well with its museum, and, and also the Bradman Museum in barrel. So, so Mike, how important is it for cricket to preserve its history? And should people within the sports media profession learn more about their sports history to get that extra knowledge? Well, in, a, in an ideal world, um, those who care about the game uh, would have a more than a rudimentary knowledge of the, of the history. Um, there's so many markers and so many milestones, so much to celebrate. Um, yes, I, I think, but, you know, you can't force feed history, Jack. You can't force feed it. You have to care enough about the game. I mean, you could teach, can you teach T20 history already? I don't know. Perhaps you can. Um, the, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's becoming a very, very complex issue because generally the emphasis on the short form means that the the longer forms... I mean, we haven't even mentioned Sheffield Shield cricket or county cricket mm. or the, um, uh, you know, uh, the domestic cricket in uh, in New Zealand or in, in, uh, in India, and all of those are struggling desperately. Um, so it's it's a very different world where we're confronting, and I think the the games administrators have to have to demonstrate um, that they do care still for the traditional form. I mean, we we can't have uh, we can't have successful Test cricket uh, without having very good productive Shield cricket or County cricket um, for the the players to learn. Um, you know, and we've to, to to play in the traditional game. You have to have a traditional and conventional upbringing in the game. Um, but um, you, you know, if we're going to separate it and have clearly defined um, uh, test match teams, fifty over teams, and T Twenty teams, well, that's what that's another aspect that concerns me. When you talk about the Australian captain. I mean, it used to be the Australian captain. And now is it the Australian test match captain? Is it the Australian 50-over mm. captain? Is it the Australian T20 captain? So uh, the nomenclature has, has changed. Everything has changed about the game. And so we get back to that old story about the need for very strong leadership, very strong leadership at the international level that can see um, and, and confront the issues that are, that, that are emerging in every country. Uh, and there are issues, as you pointed out, there are issues in every country that need to be addressed. Um, just because more money than ever before is circulating doesn't mean the game's in a healthy state. Um, the game is prospering at certain levels, but failing at others. And how much do we care about the areas that's failing? That's the issue that the game needs to address and address quickly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you, you've written many books on, on the game's history, Mike, uh, over your time in your career. 
Um, what have been some of the, the things that you've um, researched, that you've discovered, and that you've never um, learned before um, in, in your time researching for books and reading up about the history of the game? Oh, I think once you've got a, got a subject in mind, and uh, we all, there's limits to what you, you do know. I mean, you can read a, a lot as you're growing up. You can read a lot. Um, that's the joy when you make a decision, as I did in after 86 and 87. I know I was so incensed by what was going on. <coughs> I said, right, well, let's let's explore. Um, and a lot of that that emerged in, in the Cricket Beyond the Bazaar was just from, from research. But the, mo the more dramatic research was done on the Tarrant story because nobody knew about Tarrant and still doesn't know about Tarrant. And that's why I'm still having so much of a trouble to convince anyone about the merit of a Tarrant medal um, because he played all his cricket fundamentally in, for Middlesex in England um, played in fits and starts for Victoria, but very little got the first double hundred for Victoria. But um, he played very little in Australia. But when you look at his achievements as a player, let alone his um, that he coached um, the first team to go Indian team to go to England, and and that was the reason for thirty five six in Australia was to prepare the England uh, Indian team for England in thirty six. Um, he umpired the first two test matches in uh, that India played at home. I mean, it's an astonishing achievement, but nobody knows much about it. So that mm. was why it, I found it, you know, it was essential um, to, um, to, ad to address it and to, I called him the forgotten pioneer, and, which he is. And, uh, and there's a lot there. You know, there are other Australians who have contributed to, um, to cricket in, uh, in India as well. Uh, Leo O'Brien was involved in the at Patiala in the National Institute of Sport in India. I mean, there's the, and that's all the sorts of stuff that emerges, uh, Jack. But you've got to have a starting point, as you did when you were doing your research. You had a starting point, and once you got a starting point, and if you care enough, once you get in, you know. I mean, I'm. When I was writing Cricket Beyond the Bazaar, that was when I first f became fascinated by Tarrant, and that was 33 years ago. And so it took th the gestation period for the Tarrant book was 30 years. Hmm. I mean, admittedly, I did a bit, fair bit of other work and other books in the meantime, but um, that's where the fascination began, and that's, and that's the joy of the game. Once you get into something, it'll take you to places that you never dreamt of. Absolutely, and you just get absorbed in, in that um euphoria i think you just can't stop yeah it's true uh, that, that's what i tend to to do i just get lost when you're reading stuff and it's just wonderful uh, you get a real buzz from it, and you learn more about the game because you know cricket's that type of sport mike where you just learn something new every day you may know everything but you don't know everything entirely no, so when you know something historically or something like that it's wow i didn't know that it's no, like no. cricket it's like um because uh, we, we've interviewed a few Americans on the podcast, Mike, and you would know that cricket in America has a strong connection over the years. Um, you know, many people didn't know that Don Bradman actually toured America yeah. in the US uh, and yeah. Canada just before Bodyline in 32, 
33 went there with and his the big, wife. The biggest, the biggest worry, Jack, is that it's going to have a bigger influence in the future. Steve Smith wants to complete his career as a captain of a franchise in New York. So yes. it might happen. Yes. But that's, um, it's all too much for me to contemplate on a, on, on a leisurely winter's day in Sydney, I can tell you. <laughs> yes. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just a wonderful thing, the history of the game. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I think you would encourage, Mike, people just to, you know, just read and just research the history. You may learn something new, um, yep, but... which is the important thing about learning the, the game's great um, history. Um, let's move on to our next topic, Mike, and talk about Australian cricket. Um, and there are three main areas I wanted to talk about with you about Australian cricket, Mike. Uh, the history of cricket in Australia and its connection with each other, uh, obviously the baggy green, of course, and uh, the Australian women's and, and men's teams. But let's start with the first one, Mike, the history of cricket in Australia. It's a part of the Australian psyche and sporting culture. Um, it's often referred to as Australia's national sport, but may some people may say otherwise uh, with their particular sport, but it is the summer game in Australia. It's a national sport that we play. And just about every Australian, whether they've played cricket growing up or haven't, they've either played the game or have gone and watched a game of cricket in some capacity. So, so Mike, tell us about that history and the connection that cricket and, have, and, and Australia have with each other because it's a very interesting um, relationship, isn't it? I think it's changing. I think immigration has got a lot to do with that. I don't think um, it perhaps... You don't see too much cricket being played in the street these days uh, or in the back alleys. It's like you don't see much, uh, too many uh, homes with tennis courts these days either, uh, with tennis being played in little social tennis parties at weekends. Um, yes, historically, there's been a very, very close association. It's part of the Australian psyche, as you say. Um, I think that's changing. Um, if you look at the demographic, um, the immigration aspect since the Second World War, um, not to mention the lack of visibility of the Indigenous people in the game. Uh, so I think the game's got a lot to confront. There's got a lot to confront. Um, it's interesting that a, a few of uh, Indian background are starting to prosper and um, there's no doubt uh, that uh, the Indian uh, di diaspora is growing in this country. It is now the Indian immigration is a higher figure than the Chinese immigration now. There's been very few Chinese players that have come through. Uh, you might have had Richard Chiqui opening the batting for New South Wales briefly. But I think the game's got a lot to address there. Um, in, and I think it recognised that, well, certainly has as far as the Indigenous uh, aspect is concerned with the different carnivals and one thing or another, even if it's not a game that has particular appeal to the Indigenous people. Um, I think too often it's by them it is seen as the game of the oppressor and um, historically, and um, it, it's going to take a long time before I think uh, we get more um, Indigenous playing at, at, the, at a senior level. Um, so I think, yeah, the game is uh, certainly it's part of uh, the, the Australian, I mean, what are they, the ABC always used to say, the sound of summer. Um, and that's true. Cricket is to a very large mm. degree. But um, 
it's changing, Jack. It's changing, and um, and cricket needs to be uh, to be uh, aware of that and to meet the challenges that. Um, uh, but uh, we're very fortunate. The game is still healthy here, like it is in England. It is still healthy. Um, in India, it is particularly healthy. Pakistan, it's healthy um, at village level. Um, I'm not so sure about New Zealand, um, who have um, uh, have fought above their weight spectacularly for a very long, long time. But um, yeah, no, you know, we've got and there's. As I mentioned very early in the in our chat about the the quality of cricket writing, um, you know the um, on top down under the summer game, um, the um, Archie Jackson story and many others. Um, you know the game um, has been well served in this country by its journalists and broadcasters, um, but uh, we mustn't take it for granted because it's a very different landscape these days. Absolutely. Um, and we should be grateful just to have the opportunity to play and um, enjoy cricket in this country. Um, whereas in other countries, it's not quite the case because the game's not quite as strong and healthy in those other parts of the world. Um, let's talk about the baggy green, Mike. And it's, it's one of the most revered symbols in Australian cricket. Every Australian cricketer, female or male, aspires to to uh, earn a baggy green. And even those growing up in the backyard um, aspire to wear one to know that you've made it as a, as a test cricketer. Not many have um, worn a baggy green. Only 466 men's test players have worn one and 183 female uh, test players have worn the baggy green. And uh, for women's cricket, they don't play enough test cricket. So it does mean a lot for the, uh, for the Australian women's team to wear the baggy green and get that opportunity to to play a women's test because the women's test matches are very, very scarce um, in this um, current time. Um, but many baggy greens, Mark, have been sold at auctions over the years. People want to get their hands on this sporting piece of memorabilia. Um, you would know Don Bradman's baggy greens have sold for large sums of money over the years and Shane Warne auctioned his off for charity and that went for large sums of money and that's at the barrel that's in barrel at the Bradman Museum on display. Um, even people have written songs about it, like John Williamson wrote a song about the baggy green and he featured Steve Waugh in it, who um, talked about the baggy green in the song. Also, Mike, baggy greens were issued for every tour, basically. They would have the year of the tour below the crest um, and players would get one for every tour. I think they stopped doing that in 1972, I think. Um, from what I could gather, um, they stop um, issuing new baggy greens for every tour after that. So players now get one and they can repair it um, if, if damaged or get another one. And um, obviously, Mike, when, when players were presented with their baggy greens in a cardboard box, uh, no one really presented them with a, with a baggy green. Mark Taylor started that tradition in 1998 in Pakistan. Um, he presented... Uh, Colin Miller with his first uh, baggy green at Royal Pindi uh, to start that tradition off. And then Steve Waugh picked up the tradition uh, when he took over from Tubby. Um, and in 1999 in the home series against Pakistan, um, he invited uh, former Invincible uh, Bill Brown to present Adam Gilchrist and Scott Muller with their caps, uh, a tradition which many teams around the world do now, Mike. 
and that started from Australia. Also, another tradition is, you know, in the first session in the field, the Australian team wear their baggy greens, uh, a, a tradition started by Mark Taylor again, but I think it was suggested by Steve Waugh. Uh, the reason they did that was a symbol of sol solidarity, being as one, um, as a collective team. And as you know, Mike, many people are, are passionate about the baggy green, you know, like Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh, and others. Um, you know, Steve Waugh's nearly disintegrated on his head. He wore it for 168 tests, and it's at the, um, at the SCG on display in the museum there. Um, but, Mike... Many people don't care much about the baggy green all that much in terms of, you know, idolizing the cap and that. I think you heard Ian Chappell once described it as a $5 piece of cloth. Um, Bill Laurie wore his baggy green to clean out his pigeon coop to keep the pigeon poo off his head. And the great opener, Bill Ponsford, <laughs> this was funny, uh, he wore his baggy green while painting his picket fence outside his house to keep the paint off his head. And, and Shane Warne and Mark wore... Uh, wore their floppy hats, they didn't wear their baggy greens as much. And I know, so Mark, you would remember that the Australian team um, in 2001 wore their baggy greens to Wimbledon because Pat Rafter was in the final um, and Shane Warne thought it was ridiculous and why we're doing this. But And, and obviously, as I mentioned, he auctioned his baggy green off for charity because of the bushfires a couple of years back and it's at the Bradman Museum and you wrote a book, Mike, uh, called Warn, Warn, the Baggy Green that rallied Australia, which you wrote for the Bradman Museum. Um, and you've also written another book about the Baggy Green called The Baggy Green, the Pride, Passion and History of Australia's Sporting Icon. You've written that with uh, Michael Fay. So, Mike, why is it that uh, the Baggy Green is the most revered symbol in Australian cricket? And, and why do we speak so highly about uh, this particular item in Australian cricket. I don't think I can really add to your rundown on that, um, Jack, as a fairly comprehensive uh, cover. Um, I'm in the throes of rewriting the uh, baggy green at the moment with Michael Fay for a new edition for next year. So we'll hopefully come up with something fresh on it, but um, I, I can't add anything to your dissertation. Um, you encaptured it perfectly really it's uh, it's a symbol that means a lot to a lot of people um, a lot are indifferent to it um, to investors it means an enormous amount um, uh, it holds its value pretty well and um, certainly one of the questions I'll be asking the uh, the new generation or the current generation, whether it means as much to them as it did when I wrote the Baggy Green, uh, what, what, 10, 12, 13 years ago, when I think Michael Clark was the, the key figure that I used there. So it'll be interesting to see talking to them. You're quite right to, that it means a lot to the women particularly um, mm. because they're only just starting to get that the, um, the recognition and sadly they won't... They, they won't play more test cricket. It seems as though it's too uh, difficult for them uh, to program it. And so they've come up with a multifaceted series with the, the, um, the test match, the, five, five, the uh, 50 over and the 20 over. And it seems to be a format that's working reasonably well. But the women would love to play more test match cricket. But uh, that's uh, an issue that's before the, uh, the administrators as we speak. 
and it'll be interesting to see whether they can resolve that. But yeah, no, it's a, it's an important symbol. Um, it's um, anybody when you say the baggy green, they know perfectly well what you're talking about. Um, and that in itself is a testament to uh, to the greatness of the of, of the symbol. Absolutely, it's uh, one of those most iconic symbols in world cricket, which everyone talks to um, talks about about um, Australian cricket in particular. It's the first thing they describe. Um, let, let's talk about the the men's and the women's teams, Mike, and how they've gone over the years. Um, let's talk about the men's team first. Uh, you've witnessed many of Australian cricket's highs and lows and many great achievements since you've been covering cricket over the years. You covered the Thai Test in 86, Australia's Cricket World Cup win in 87, um, obviously Australia winning the 1989 Ashes series under Alan Border pretty much kick-started Australia's dominance in Ashes cricket and in world cricket. Um, Australia winning in the West Indies in 1995. I think you were commentating or covering that uh, series, Mike, um, in the Caribbean where Australia broke the drought and finally won a series in the Caribbean. And Mark Taylor led the Australian team to win the Sir Frank Worrell Trophy in the Caribbean. Um, Under Arm in 1981, um, the 1980s, during uh, that difficult era for Australian cricket when they were struggling, um, and then obviously most recently Cape Town in 2018 with the ball tampering saga. Also, Mike, there's been many great people that have helped Australian cricket and helped shaped it, especially the men's team as we know it today. Uh, Don Bradman, Richie Benno, Ian Chappell, Alan Border, Mark Taylor and Steve Waugh. Um, and the current team under Pat Cummins' leadership um, have won the World Test Championship recently and retained the ashes in England, but the team faces many challenges ahead. Uh, Mike, how do you assess the Australian men's team today and what challenges lie ahead for the team? And in your opinion, who were the main figures that helped shape Australian cricket the way it is today? Oh, Jack, that's covering a bit of ground. Um, it's a... It's, I mean, it's an interest. It's an interesting. At any at any time um, after an Ashes series, uh, there's all the speculation about the future. It, oh, I don't know, mate. Really, honestly, it, the selectors will sit down like they do every every year, every two years, and look. The I don't think there's any serious issues there. There's the perennial one: the lack of a leg spinner. Um, that just goes on year after year because the world believed that uh, um, that all Australian boys were turned to bowling leg spin when Shane Warne was about. None of them ever did, so that was the end of that. Um, and so it gives Murphy a wonderful opportunity um, to develop, to take over from Lyon. I think if there's one area that is of some concern, the fast bowling is of concern. I don't think there's the depth there. Um, that there once was. I mean, it's a pretty accomplished triumvirate that's going around at the moment, but they've been there for a fair time now. Uh, Cummins' leadership, um, having a fast bowler at the helm, is, has proved to be very um, productive so far and well accepted. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's the old story. Is there the depth? Is there mm. the depth in Sheffield Shield cricket? But, I mean, this is something we could argue at the end of every summer. 
Um, they've just won the World Championship. They should have won the Ashes. But for, um, for 44 runs and a strange decision about swapping the ball, they would have won the Ashes. Um, and um, so, no, I think we're, they're in, they're in a, we're in a very good position. Uh, the interesting thing is that the women probably are getting just as much attention as the men, as they should, because they've been so, so consistently successful over the last, um, um, well, nearly 10 years now. It's been remarkable. Um, and, uh, and this uh, more recently without Meg Lanning as well. I mean, they are an exceptional side. Uh, Alex Blackwell and uh, Elise Perry. Um, there's just so many talented young players. Um, so I, you, you couldn't help to be in a, uh, to be in a healthier position uh, with both the men and the women's cricket that's very, very prosperous. Absolutely. Um, just to go back on those figures I, I, I mentioned, Mike, what was it about Don Bradman, and Richie Benno, Ian Chappell, Alan Border, Mark Taylor and Steve Waugh? Uh, what, how did, uh, what was it, the what was it about leaders, them? Simple as that. Leaders. Leaders of men. Men of character. Leaders. That's, that's what they were. Who could defy the odds. Um, outstanding. I mean, <clears throat> Bradman wasn't the most popular, but he was so, so, pro so productive, so good, and he, he had an intimate knowledge of the game. They're all great leaders. Some were, were leaders by... Uh, instinct. Um, a border what didn't want the job initially and grew into it. Uh, his, his record is the most remarkable um, because um, he had no assistance at all. The others all had support to different levels, some uh, with tremendous depth, but border had to go it alone. And that's why he's got such a, a lofty um, place in the, uh, in the history of the Australian game. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer there, uh, Mike. Um, you mentioned the women's team. Let's talk about them. And uh, as we mentioned, they're very successful. They've won basically every women's World Cup there is to win and T20 World Cup. And um, yeah, I know the, know the history, mate. Let's let's get into the what you you need to know. I know the history. Um, in the Commonwealth Games uh, last year, they won. Uh, the gold medal, uh, which is a proud achievement. But they have inspired the next generation of girls to play cricket and um, play this wonderful game that we all love, Mike. And um, I think the Women's T20 World Cup final in 2020 uh, showed that growth in, in women's cricket with 86,174 watching at the MCG, which holds 100,000. Uh, and I think that was when I had Mary Walden on, former Ireland women's wicketkeeper, she had tears in her eyes when she was at the game watching. It meant so much to, to her as a female cricketer and uh, many of them as well. Um, and also women's cricket has grown around the world as well, Mike. And um, what changes have you noticed in, in women's cricket in Australia? Because... Um, women's cricket wasn't really covered as much um, in the media or the press um, and um, wasn't really talked about, whereas now it's talked about all the time, which is fantastic. And and what does the future hold for for women's cricket in Australia, but also in, 
uh, world cricket as well. Well, the, the biggest the biggest difference is, has been acceptance, acceptance in the wider community. Uh, the girls um, have always been disadvantaged by an indifference towards uh, women's sport generally in the community, and that's been played out um, by uh, newspaper editors or sports editors who have been indifferent to women's sport, uh, haven't given it the amount of space. I can remember working on The Age in um, the early 80s and Peg McMahon was there uh, gallantly holding the flag for women's sport editorially, but there have been very few. There are Judy Joy Davies in Melbourne. There's been some who have worked very, very hard over the years. But now in recent years, of course, um, there's uh, and that, that's the key word is acceptance. Uh, the wider community have accepted and come to appreciate it, uh, appreciate the, the women's remarkable skills. Um, um, and interestingly, I think with a lot of the women's cricketers is that the number of, uh, it was with the Matildas as well, there's a number of young boys that are fascinated by what uh, the women are achieving and they're as familiar with the status of the women's cricketers as they are with the men's cricketers. And that's very much to, uh, to it shows that the reach, plus they're getting more uh, free time, uh, free to air television. Um, and that's been significant. So the more the exposure, um, uh, uh, the greater the awareness will be in the wider community. So more power to them. They're showing that they're, uh, they're wonderful athletes, they're, they've got tremendous skills. Um, some of the batting and the catching these days is, uh, is truly exceptional. And, um, and it shouldn't be just treated as something novel. Um, it's, uh, we, we've come to understand that they are very highly skilled athletes um, and uh, we respect their achievements enormously and more power to them for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hopefully it you know, will grow um, in the years to come and inspire more uh, girls and uh, to take up sport. And it's in a good place, women's cricket in Australia. No? So hopefully um, other countries around the world can encourage uh, young girls to, to take up the game as well. Uh, just before we move on to our last topic, Mike, uh, of this very long discussion, thank you, everyone, for still listening to us, um, if you are. Um, will the passion, the love for cricket in Australia diminish in the years to come or will that passion and love be ever stronger for the game as we progress in the years and generations ahead? Well, that we just don't know. We, we can hope. Um, you and I would certainly hope that the passion will always be there, but there's been enough indications over the last 10, 15, 20 years that it's dissipating, um, that it's not what it was. Um, I think from a traditionalist point of view that the players have to, uh, the ones who care about test match cricket, and that's where I admire Virat Kohli greatly. He loves his test match cricket and talks loudly and proudly about it. Um, and I think um, I'd like to see Cummins do the same. I'd like to see all test match captains or test match players be, um, uh, be more conspicuous in talking about test match cricket and the joys of it, what it has meant to them. Um, I think that's going to be significant. I think young listeners 
and those who have only come to the game through its short forms would listen to senior players talking about the joys of a, of a form of the game they don't know or don't understand. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think it can prosper, but it's going to, it's, 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 we can't take it for granted. Uh, that's become patently clear. The, the game is changing so quickly. Attitudes um, within the cricket community are changing. It's a very competitive marketplace um, uh, for sports entertainment, and it's be, it's been it, it is considered as an entertainment now. It's always should be an entertainment, as Richie Benno and Frank Worrell pointed out in 1960 when they saved the, the traditional form. Um, and so it's all very well for um, for the baseball creators to say that they're saving the game. They're not saving the game. Their arrogance was uh, was astonishing. Um, their holier than thou attitude. Test cricket in the last 20 years has been pretty good. Been pretty productive. There's been some magnificent series, some magnificent results. And it's for um, McCullum and Stokes to suggest that they're the saviours is, uh, is 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 ridiculous. And it, given, of course, that it's an England side being led by two New Zealanders anyway. So, um, no, the game can prosper, um, but uh, let's talk it up and let's not be completely seduced by the shorter forms just because of the money and the pecking order. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer there, Mike. Um, we've come to our last uh, part of the discussion today, Mike, and uh, it's been a pretty long one, but... Um, I thought to end our discussion today, Mike, we uh, asked our listeners to send in some questions for you to answer, and uh, they want to get your answers to these questions that they've sent in. So um, we'll start with the first person who sent in their questions. Uh, it's uh, from Jihan, who um, is a regular listener of the podcast. Uh, he sends in two questions for you, Mike, to answer. Um, his first question was, uh, was Mike actually at the second test in Madras? now known as Chennai in 1986. If so, uh, were the conditions really as ridiculous as most people make out? I've heard it was 40 degrees with 90% humidity, but that does seem a bit over-exaggerated to me. And uh, what does Mike think about Greg Matthews really not giving Dean Jones much credit for his innings, saying it was really on a flat pitch? And... Was this series potentially what set the foundations for the complete turnaround and fortunes of Australian cricket, starting with the World Cup uh, win in the following year? So your response to that, Mike, that's Jihan's first question there. Yeah, well, Jihan is, uh, is right. The conditions were somewhat exaggerated. It wasn't 40 degrees, but it was probably 35, and the, but the humidity reading of 90% was pretty right. It was very, very oppressive conditions. Um, uh, I've lived south of Chennai in the Mahapalipuram Road, so I know the area and the weather pretty well. And it, um, it was very, very hot and very oppressive. Um, I, Greg Matthews is a difficult, uh, a difficult figure, always has been. He bowled beautifully in that test match. Um, and uh, to get his, his 10 wickets, his two fives, um, his criticism of Jones was unacceptable and outrageous. I've got no idea. You never what got into his head, but you never always know what gets into his head anyway. He's a very erratic um, individual. Um, 
his innings, Jones's innings, was as good as I've seen. Um, in the conditions, it was exceptional. Uh, Border got 100. Uh, Kapil Dev got 100. David Boone got 100. And Gavaska got one of the great 90s of all time. I can still see him down on one knee, square driving um, Craig McDermott now. Um, so there was some wonderful batting, but none better than Jones. Um, and any criticism of him uh, was, uh, was unfair. And yes, Jahan is right that the, the 1986 and 87, um, what was developed in that side over those two years on the subcontinent, there was the hiccup back in Australia in 86-7 against England. But um, basically the success that they trumpeted in 1989 in England was all born out of the mateship and the skills developed under Border and Bob Simpson in 86 and 87. So Jahan is spot on there. Yeah, I think that's a good response there, Mike. Um, his second question for you, Mike, is uh, where does Mike see the state of test cricket in India going? A strong first-class system promotion by key players such as Virat Kohli playing in home conditions that are almost impossible to beat India in developing a team that has been more than competitive away from home in recent years, has kept them near the top of the ladder. However, with so many players developing via the IPL route these days, could we be seeing a potential decline? And could we get to a point whereby only the Ashes has any significance and following in the years to come? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I would like to think that the, the Coley influence... Uh, and just before him, the Dravids, the Lakshmans, um, Kumbles and company have all talked about the joys of Test Match cricket. You would hope that there are enough <coughs> who care deeply uh, about Test Match cricket there that uh, they will continue to prosper. I mean, we're dealing with the un absolutely unknown. Um, India has been spectacularly successful um, in every aspect of the game, including their test match cricket, um, and, and their record outside the country is, is, has improved dramatically, where historically it was very poor. Um, I mean, they're virtually unbeatable in their own conditions, um, although Australia um, have uh, had some limited successes there over the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, I... It's. Uh, I don't think even Jahan would know. I mean, you can you could just hope if he cares about Test match cricket. I mean, that's where Coley's been so good. He's talked it up. Hopefully, those who follow in his footsteps get the same sort of joy from Test match cricket that Coley and Tendulkar and Dravid and Laxman and and Co. The joy they've got from it and the success that they've had. Um, and Anil Kumble, who I saw the other day in India, had a yarn with him, and um, Dravid's coaching um, the uh, or was managing the team, uh, or was he coaching one or the other? He was in the West Indies with them. Um, so hopefully that their philosophy uh, and their love for the games, you know, is handed down, and so the next generation will care about it. Yeah, I think that's. Uh... A good response there to Jihan's question there. Thank you, Jihan, for your questions. And our last listener's question, 
Mike, comes from Hazar, and he says, is cricket losing its popularity in Australia because we don't see any crowds for matches? That's his question for you. Um, well, we see pretty good crowds for test matches. We see pretty good crowds for the one-day internationals still. Um, he's probably referring to the Sheffield Shield where it's where he's spot on. We don't see very good crowds at all. This has been a recurring issue for some years now. And that's because of the amount of short-form stuff again. Um, and it does take, it's a different society. It's a busy society. Um, people don't have the amount of time that they once had to, to, uh, to dedicate to watching the game. Uh, the good compensation there is there's been some television appreciation now of, uh, of Sheffield Shield cricket. And that's a good thing. Um, but um, no, I don't think the crowds are falling too dramatically in Australia. If the competition is good, Australian cricket crowds have good knowledge and do care about the game, and they'll uh, they'll attend. But um, uh, but he's right about the uh, the concerns about the domestic cricket. Uh, but that's been a, a a recurring theme. One way around it has been partly successful in playing on smaller grounds and taking it out of the big cities. I mean, it costs too much money to open. Um, the MCG, for instance, for a, for a Sheffield Shield match. So if you're playing it at the Junction Oval, uh, at St Kilda can be very successful. Or taking it to country venues, that um, providing that the, uh, that the, uh, the pitch conditions have been um, have developed to a first-class level, um, that can be very successful as well. So there are ways around it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is a, a recurring issue and has been for probably near, over 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Hazai, for your question. I hope Mike answered it uh, to the best of his ability. Well, Mike, uh, thank you for joining me uh, for this cricket discussion today. I've enjoyed it immensely and I've learned so much from our chat today and it's been a long one, uh, so I do apologize for that, but I uh, hope everyone's still listen, uh, still listening to the episode and enjoyed listening to Mike's um, stories and um, his, um, you know, career in broadcasting in cricket and, and just on the game of cricket in general. Um, and um, hopefully um, everyone will take something out of this episode. Um, any words, Mike, before we uh, call stumps today? <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Jack, being with you, and um, good luck on uh, continuing to uh, to spruik the word, uh, particularly of the, uh, the the traditional game. It's important that uh, those who do care about it talk about it, and um, we're very fortunate. It's it's a game that can bring great joy, and um, and we've all got our uh, we've got to accept a little responsibility for sharing the good news of the game wherever we uh, wherever we go. And um, we can't keep it to ourselves. It's got to be shared. And uh, so, no, it's been a pleasure being with you and good luck with the, uh, the podcast in the future. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you for those kind words. And uh, thank you for giving up your time to join me to speak about your career and other things within cricket. I've enjoyed it immensely, as I mentioned. Um, before we go, everyone, uh, remember to like, share, comment, subscribe and click the bell. 
to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Most of the podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. Uh, once again, Mike, thank you for joining me for this quick discussion. I've enjoyed it immensely. And thank you, everyone, for watching as well. I hope you learned a lot uh, about Mike and, and on the game of cricket as well. Until next time, keep safe and bye for now.